This episode is dedicated to all victims of racial hatred and unchecked power. May we never forget, nor fail to act. Hello again, and welcome to Hospitable Imaginations, a podcast that looks at the art of storytelling. I'm Christopher Gonzalez, here again with you to better understand how stories move us. Today, the only responsible thing is to take a moment and attempt to take a Google Earth view of the turmoil and outrage that has once more pulled back the curtain on one of the oldest wounds in the history of the United States. I'm going to talk about racism, and inequality, and law enforcement, and perhaps a host of other things that make people uncomfortable. Indeed, in this brief episode, I want to make you feel very uncomfortable. But I also understand if you want to skip over this episode. As the character narrator Severian says at the end of Gene Wolfe's The Shadow of the Torturer, if you wish to walk no farther with me, reader, I do not blame you. It is no easy road. Without much of a stretch, I think you'll see how so much of what is going on in the summer of 2020 is in many ways connected to storytelling. So I hope you'll stick around and keep listening to this episode. I won't be long. I'll return to my examination of storytelling openings in the next episode. And as a bonus, I have a review of a recent book about how Latinos have been represented in television titled Talking Brown TV. Latinas and Latinos on the Screen by Frederick Luis Aldama and William Anthony Nericho. A must-have if you want to explore the interaction of Latinos and television. Just a reminder that this podcast is for anyone who is interested in the nuts and bolts of storytelling. Even in today's episode, we'll examine closely storytelling and how it relates to racial identity expression, racist thinking, and more. Here is where I encourage you to subscribe to Hospitable Imaginations via your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many more. You can also ask Alexa to play the latest episode of Hospitable Imaginations, courtesy of TuneIn. It's difficult to begin with a single incident. If I say, the murder of George Floyd, a black man in Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the hands of four police officers who strangled the life from him, has sparked protests and outrage both at home in the United States and all over the world, it would somehow fail to capture the magnitude of this moment. If I said that, someone would rightly say to me, wait a minute, Gonzalez, what about the wanton murder of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, who was shot to death by police officers, shot eight times while she slept in her own home? I would respond by saying, yes, you are absolutely right. We should say her name. But hold on, someone else would interrupt. What about Ahmaud Arbery, gunned down while jogging in broad daylight? True, I'd say. Yeah, but wait a minute. What about Dominique Taylor? True. And what about Eric Garner? Izel Ford? John Crawford III? Michael Brown? Dante Parker, Michelle Cusseau, Laquan McDonald, George Mann, 
What about Tanisha Anderson, Akai Gurley, Tamir Rice, Romaine Brisbane, Jeremy Reed, Matthew Ajabade, Frank Smart, Natasha McKenna, Tony Robinson, Anthony Hill, Maya Hall. What about Philip White, Eric Harris, Walter Scott, William Chapman II, Alexia Christian, Brendan Glenn, Victor Manuel La Rosa, Jonathan Sanders, Freddie Blue, Joseph Mann. What about Salvador Ellswood, Sandra Bland, Albert Joseph Davis, Darius Stewart, Billy Ray Davis, Samuel Dubose, Michael Sabby, Brian Keith Day. What about Christian Taylor, Troy Robinson, Assam's Pharaoh Manley, Felix Kumi, Keith Harrison McLeod, Junior Prosper, Lamontex Jones, Patterson Brown, Dominic Hutchinson, Anthony Ashford. What about Alonzo Smith, Tyree Crawford, India Kager, Levante Biggs, Michael Lee Marshall, Jamar Clark, Richard Perkins, Nathaniel Harris Pickett, Minnie Lee Tigner. What about Miguel Espinal, Michael Noel, Kevin Matthews, Betty Jones, Quintonio Legier, Keith Childress Jr., Janet Wilson. What about Randy Nelson, Antroni Scott, Wendell Celestin, David Joseph, Kaylin Rockmore, Deshaun Perkins, Christopher Davis, Marco Loud, Peter Gaines, Tori Robinson. What about Darius Robinson, Kevin Kicks, Mary Truxillo, Demarcus Simmer, Willie Tillman, Terrell Thomas, Silville Smith, Alton Sterling. What about Philando Castile, Terence Crutcher, Paul O'Neill, Alteria Woods, Jordan Edwards, Aaron Bailey, Ronell Foster, Stefan Clark, Antoine Rose II. What about Botham Jean, Pamela Turner, Tatiana Jefferson, Christopher Whitfield, Christopher McCorvey, Eric Reason. And what about Michael Lorenzo Dean? According to NPR, the roster of names I just read is a, quote, non-comprehensive list of deaths at the hands of police in the U.S. since July 2014, end quote. That is less than six years, and it's non-comprehensive. That means there are many more names of black men and women murdered with impunity by law enforcement or otherwise. Imagine if we went back 20 years. How many names would I have to read to account for two decades? What about 50 years? What if I went back almost 75 years to the murder of the 14-year-old Emmett Till? How many names would I read then? What if I went back 100 years or more when black and brown bodies were murdered and lynched and were never recorded as such? They simply were disappeared. I meditate on this because we cannot really point to a singular instance of outrage as a foundational moment of racial violence in the United States. 
If we travel back in time to the widely accepted and then legal institution of human slavery in the United States, we are confronted by the easy disposability of a black body, because it was, as codified in the laws of the land at the time, nothing more than property. And only rarely and recently did such killings and lynchings become noteworthy, an occasion to stop and render figurative aid. To me, this is a kind of insidious process of persistent and consistent dehumanization of black bodies and devaluation of black lives. Now, more than I remember in my lifetime, the efforts of social justice, ethnic studies, critical race theory, and much more are converging. We are at a confluence of long-standing forces of history, and we as a collective have an opportunity that only comes around like a 200-year flood. In the midst of protest and civil disobedience, many are wondering what is next. Let me begin by saying that there are many forms of action we might take, and they are all, in holistic terms, helpful if they address and reform the problem. Considering my particular set of skills, and in light of this podcast, I'm going to provide you with how you might engage this historical moment from the perspective of storytelling. One of the things I consistently tell students who take my classes is that unless they have the same identity position as, say, a young black man in the United States, that they should never think that they know what it's like. Further, they should never say it. Don't say, I know it must be hard to be a young black man in the United States, unless you actually know through lived experience. Rather, I say they should acknowledge that they will forever be ignorant of first-hand experiences that are the kind so often experienced by blacks and African-descended peoples. Indeed, this goes for anyone trying to understand the plight of a less privileged demographic than oneself. Embrace and own that ignorance. I remind my students that ignorance, rather than the pejorative connotations that we generally see associated with it, actually just means that you lack knowledge of a particular area. Taking my cue from Ibram X. Kendi, who has recently made glorious progress in our understanding of racism by positing an anti-racist position, let me suggest that we also commit to being anti-ignorance. In doing so, we would freely admit that ignorance is not a binary. In other words, that we are either ignorant or experienced. Rather, we have a sliding scale of ignorance. And moreover, we have many areas in which a scale might appear. Imagine something like a mixing board, the kind you see in sound or music production, with all of the faders that look like sliders. So we may be very informed in certain areas, but woefully ignorant in others. Though we may be woefully ignorant, let us never be willfully ignorant. What's the difference? Well, I am woefully ignorant about almost everything that it takes to successfully take off, fly, and land an aircraft. If I am never called upon to fly a plane, this immense pocket of ignorance in my mind is inconsequential. However, if through some strange twist of fate, Let's say I suddenly was in a position where I had to fly a plane, and I had one year to learn. Imagine me encountering flying theory in practice and refusing to acknowledge that it was important or worthy of consideration. See, I already have my own theories about flying. That is what I mean when I say willful ignorance. 
an outright refusal to accept what is presented to you in a priori fashion, a Latin term that means a kind of beforehand knowledge you accept before actually putting something to the test. I also tell my students what I believe is the most important thing someone can do when it comes to issues that relate to privileged versus marginalized identities. It is a twofold mantra. Number one, your own experience is not the world's experience. Two, believe another person's story until you have a reason not to, a posteriori, that is, after you have more evidence and experience. What does this look like in practice? First, let's take number one. Your own experience is not the world's experience. Often I hear someone say something like, I've had many interactions with police officers, and they've never treated me with brutality and violence. And the implication is that, ergo, police brutality or violence must not be an actual thing because it's never happened to one personally. Such positions are a failure of imagination. Or, on the contrary, they require a heightened sense of imagination to pretend your own experience is the default experience. To be sure, these individuals cannot imagine themselves to enjoy any special privilege at all. They see themselves as like everyone else, or rather, they imagine that everyone else is afforded the same treatment as they are. Thus, someone else's contrary experience must either be a lie or it must be an indication of their guilt. So, the first step must be an understanding that even though certain things have never happened to you, that does not mean it does not happen to others. Number two is equally difficult for many people, and you can now see how it's related to number one. In order for you to give someone's story of their experiences the benefit of the doubt, you have to destroy your own notion that your singular experience is not everybody else's. We have heard people, for example, a white man, Say, I've never had ill treatment by police officers, and if such and such black man had been following the law, he wouldn't have been shot and killed. See, it's his fault. When I see those kinds of stances taken, I know that the person saying it can be presented with all sorts of evidence, even visual evidence that runs contrary to their assertion, and it will not change their mind. I tell my students this before they read literature by authors from other racial, ethnic, gender, religious identity positions than their own because they are sometimes reading narratives that run counter to their own experienced positions. They often refuse to believe that the experiences of black people can't really be as bad as someone like James Baldwin or Claudia Rankin write about. When Baldwin writes in his brilliant essay, Notes of a Native Son, of how close he felt to murder when being refused service at a restaurant, or when Rankin in her book, Citizen, an American Lyric, writes of something with such a diminutive name as microaggression and how it can have such devastating consequences on people, some students either refuse to believe or they cannot believe that it is as bad as these writers make it out to be. One wonders if these literary geniuses, superlative with their skill at the written word, 
cannot move 19- and 20-year-old white students at a university, what chance does the average person of color have in telling their stories? Even more eye-opening, if these students, who are willingly pursuing a degree in which they understand that they will be made to think critically, if these students struggle, what of the non-college-educated white person who consumes the majority of their news from Fox News and One American News Network and Breitbart.com? Or some students can't believe that such actions as civil disobedience are necessary, that this will all resolve itself because they truly believe that good will triumph over evil almost without effort. Never mind that world wars were fought to stop the spread of fascism and totalitarianism and genocide. Such students would say that was necessary. I want to urge you to immerse yourself in narratives by authors who create story worlds that are infused with their own identity positions about experiences outside of your own. For some time, it was popular to denounce the study of literature as a waste of time, that engaging in critical understanding of the humanities is not worthwhile. But the fewer interactions you have with less privileged identities, the fewer narrated stories and experiences and knowledge you have of those people. Without these stories, you will then rely on the small, incomplete, stereotypical swatches of culture and identity you glean from wherever you can get them. Further, you cannot rely on one novel or film to give you a complete picture of a demographic of people. Just like having one black friend doesn't give you an understanding of the black community, one novel is but one small bit of information a building block that can help bridge your chasm of ignorance on that area of cultural knowledge. And so you have to listen, read, think, and listen some more. So, as an actionable item right now, for those of you who are wondering what you can do, you can address your own levels of ignorance, for we all have them. Listen to the stories of others and take what they have to say as augmenting your own understanding of our society. You must not take it as a given that this strife will resolve itself without participation from you. You have an obligation to educate yourself, and you have the right to change your mind. When was the last time you read a novel written by a black author that explored themes of what it is like to live as a black person in the United States? When was the last time you read James Baldwin, or W.E.B. Du Bois, or Cornel West, or Michelle Alexander, or Maya Angelou, or Ta-Nehisi Coates? When was the last time you heard speeches from Dr. Martin Luther King, or Malcolm X, or Congressman John Lewis? And I'm talking about the entire speech, not just a pulled quote. My solution to controversies, generally, is to read as much about them as I can. There is wisdom out there and lived experience, too. It is not enough to tweet your outrage or to attend a protest. Those are excellent beginnings, make no mistake. But reading about these issues gives one a path to a better sense of empathy. It helps give you the words to express your feelings on the subject from an informed position. 
And it is important that you write about your own sense of engagement with these difficult issues. Often you don't really know how you stand on something until you write about it. Share it with friends, and if you're daring, post it on a blog or even something like Medium. Remaining silent, pretending you have no stake in the matter, only furthers to keep things the way they are. This is a podcast about storytelling. Stories are how we express the nuances of our experience and our histories. As we in the United States continue on the long march to freedom, liberty, and justice for all, we should not be equivocal on immersing ourselves in the stories by and about people who experience our nation very differently than we do. Tanahisi Coates, in his collection of essays titled We Were Eight Years in Power, an American Tragedy, writes, How do you defy a power that insists on claiming you? What does the story you tell matter if the world is set upon hearing a different one? How can we ever understand anyone, including ourselves, if we don't read and listen to what others have to say? I am with you on your journey, and I hope you challenge yourself to listen to others that would be heard. Take care of yourselves during this trying time in the world. Self-care is the most important care because it is an expression of love to yourself and it allows you to do the work of helping others. Remember that you are a unique expression of human identity and that you affect the world in ways that are larger and grander than you might imagine. Peace and love to you all. You can find this podcast wherever fine podcasts are located. Please subscribe so that you never miss a single episode and give Hospitable Imaginations a rating. I certainly appreciate it. If you like what you heard, please share on your favorite social media platforms via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. I'm Christopher Gonzalez. The following works were cited, quoted, or referenced in today's podcast. A Decade of Watching Black People Die by Codeswitch slash NPR Published by KPBS Public Media on www.kpbs.com Publication date June 5th, 2020 Citizen, an American Lyric by Claudia Rankin Published by Grey Wolf Press in 2014 How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi Published by One World, an imprint of Random House in 2019 Notes of a Native Son by James Baldwin First published in Harper's Magazine in November 1955 and later appeared in a collection of essays under the same title, Notes of a Native Son, published by Beacon Press in 1955. The Shadow of the Torturer by Gene Wolfe, published by Simon & Schuster in 1980. We Were Eight Years in Power, An American Tragedy by Ta-Nehisi Coates, published by One World, an imprint of Random House in 2017.